Gradcast, a podcast and radio show for the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Elizabeth Muller. Co-host today is Ariel Frame, and we are lucky to be here today with Raj Mann. So hello, Raj. How are you doing tonight? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Wondering, just to kick us off, if you can tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and your research. Sure. Um, so I did my undergrad and uh, I started my PhD all at uh, Western University here. Um, I did my undergrad in bio uh, biology and psychology and then I uh, decided to do my master's in neuroscience because that's kind of um, where I was leaning towards. Um, and I started my master's in my current lab and I really liked the project I was working on and decided to roll over into a PhD. Yeah. So roll over into a PhD. Tell us about that. What is that like? Um, it was, so I initially had that plan um, uh, when I started the project that I'm currently working on, since it had a kind of a big scope, um, because I was learning uh, this method uh, called patch clamp electrophysiology, uh, which takes a while to learn if uh, any of the listeners are electrophysiologists, they know the challenges. Um, so it took me about a year to learn the, the method itself. And then uh, it wasn't until a year after that I started to be able to collect my data. So um, for that, I decided to do uh, like a rollover into a PhD, uh, just so I would have enough time to actually do my project. So yeah, it's been a fun ride for the last two, three years. What is your project? Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, for sure. So uh, the goal of my research, uh, like the overall goal is to try to understand the mechanisms that underlie the language and communication uh, impairments we see in autism spectrum disorder. So that's, that's a very big goal. Um, I uh, break it down into um, uh, like what are the causes of autism, right? So the, as you may know, there are uh, multiple causes. Um, it can be environmental or genetic or genetic and environmental. Um, in our case, we decided to look at one specific gene. It's called CATNAP2, that's how it's pronounced. It's a CNTNAP2 gene, if anybody wants to look it up. Um, but this gene is a very important developmental gene in humans. And when it's mutated, um, it can uh, result in severe uh, intellectual disability, um, epilepsy, and um, symptoms uh, that are uh, the same as uh, seen in autism, um, such as like the language and communication deficits, social deficits, um, and repetitive behaviors. Um, so we decided to look at this gene in rodents because um, as I talked about last time as well, but uh, it's, uh, this gene is present in uh, mammals such as rodents and uh, songbirds. And when it's uh, knocked out or mutated um, in these animals, they have uh, auditory behavioral uh, differences. So for example, like I talked about um, songbirds um, lose the ability or they don't have the ability to produce songs when uh, this gene is knocked out. And in rats in which, uh, which I study, uh, when the gene is mutated, um, 
specifically homozygously mutated. Heterozygously, they can be pretty close to the wild type rats, but when it's homozygously mutated, uh, the rats uh, exhibit the hyperactive um, behaviors uh, or hyperexcitability, um, social deficits, right? So that's how they interact with other rats. Um, as well as uh, Raj, can you can you clarify for us uh, just the the difference between heterozygous and homozygous? Right, right. Um, so homozygously knocked out is when uh, both of the genes on uh, the chromosomes are knocked out in uh, the rat. So you know we have two pairs, right? Um, so when it's both are knocked out, that means that none of the protein that the gene codes for is made in heterozygotes there's still that one copy. Um, so you, the, the rats or, you know, if it's in humans, the humans still have some of the gene product, which is the protein that uh, catnap2 codes for. So that's still available. Um, so there's, uh, and we also see that, you know, a lot of the behaviors are similar to the wild type uh, rats as well. So that's, that's kind of, I hope I explained that all right, yeah. I think I think that make that makes sense. It's okay. kind of like a dose thing, you know. And then yeah, in the wild yeah. type or the normal rats, they have like a full regular amount of catnap, and then mm -hmm. the heterozygous they have half, and then the, mm -hmm. the homozygous they have none. They have none, right? So since this is such an important developmental gene, and our the hypothesis is that it's very important for a like a, at a basic auditory developmental level. So um, you know, like when uh, the rats or people, I guess, are like very young, right? Like we go through a tremendous amount of development. Um, our brain goes through a tremendous amount of de development. Um, and then when this is disrupted, it can, you know, result in a lot of behavioral alterations. Um, so this gene, this particular gene is uh, hypothesized to be important for um, basic auditory uh, behavior development. Um, and that's kind of why we decided to study it in the rodents um, to try to understand how it may work in humans, because you may know that, uh, you know, rats don't speak, they don't have language, but um, they do have auditory, uh, like processes, they have an auditory cortex, and, you know, they communicate with each other through ultrasonic vocalizations. Um, so, and the fact that it's disrupted in the rats at you know, that level means that even like in humans, this gene is important at a very basic level as well. What is an ultrasonic vocalization? That, that word is a new one in my lexicon. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, rats, they uh, communicate at uh, like through these ultrasonic vocalizations that we can't hear. So we actually have uh, like special equipment to record these to try to analyze these. So this is kind of being done by other people in my lab. And it's very interesting. I'm very interested to see what they find. But I think in mice with this mutation, they have found that uh, they have less vocalizations when uh, this gene is catnap2 is knocked out. So, you know, we know that it does alter, like the basic auditory behaviors in rats. Um, so yeah, that's why I decided to, we decided to study um, the rodent model. And I uh, specifically do electrophysiology. Uh, it's a big word, but basically I am able to place an electrode on uh, neurons 
in a, a brain region of you know wherever I choose. In my case, it's the auditory cortex because I'm interested in the auditory uh, processing, and I'm able to record the uh, the function of the neuron. So when it fires an action potential or um, like an EPSC, which is uh, like not quite an action potential, but uh, like when the cell depolarizes a little bit, you know, due to neurotransmitters from uh, cells that are connected to the cell, right? So it's, it's a little bit complicated to explain, but basically I'm able to uh, record the uh, activity of uh, the brain at the neuronal level and see if there's any differences when this gene is knocked out and compare that with the wild types and uh, kind of, you know, make uh, my judgment based on that. Yeah. So, so, uh, so far, um, you know, you've done, uh, I think, quite a lot of work at this point to <laughs> characterize these mouse with these uh, really, uh, really um, difficult uh, procedure. Like you said, it takes a long time to learn electrophysiology. So you're measuring the electrical activity of specific cells mm -hmm. in a specific area of the brain yeah. of this, of these rats that are missing, uh, that have a, have a mutation in this gene mm -hmm. that, um, that's, uh, it, you know, associated with, uh, all, uh, autism, autism, autism phenotype in, in humans. So mm -hmm. what, how, what's the, What's the difference now, <laughs> or do you know yet uh, what do the difference the in electrical activity yeah. uh, between the autism-like rats and the normal rats? Mm -hmm. So I have seen it's a little bit complicated to explain, so I'm going to try to kind of simplify it, I guess. Um, I studied uh, these rats at different ages. So what I did is I studied them at... Uh, postnatal day eight to 12, right, which is very young. So that's eight to 12 days after they're born. And then 18 to 21 days, and then uh, days 70 to 90. So I chose these three ages because the first age, eight to 12, is when they're extremely young, their ears haven't opened up, so they aren't getting any auditory input yet. Um, so and then uh, P18 to 21 is right after there's, their ears have opened up, opened up and they're getting that auditory input. And if we see, you know, like the differences uh, between these ages, it could potentially mean that um, the, uh, the environment or like the, the acoustic information uh, has an effect on how uh, this gene kind of interacts or the, the gene product, the, the protein um, interacts in your brain and like how it develops, right? Um, and then again, I did the P70 to 90 days old um, because that's the, the adult age in these rats. Um, that's what's considered adulthood. Um, so what I basically found is that there, while there were differences in the young ages, um, a lot of these differences such as um, uh, the knockouts had a uh, higher uh, firing, uh, action potential firing than the wild types, right? But these differences, they ameliorated by adulthood. So that's kind of what we see in a lot of um, like different, uh, like for example, somebody in our lab does uh, different recordings. It's not what I do, but they basically look at the brainstem response to an acoustic stimulus. Um, and they found that while there were differences at a younger age, you know, these changes can basically go back to the wild type level by adulthood. So um, 
that's kind of an interesting uh, phenomena, right? Um, where like we we don't really know how to explain it, but there's potential mechanisms that um, you know there could be. Uh, uh, sorry, what's that word? Compensation, right? Compensatory mechanisms. I am sure you hear that a lot during um, presentations, but yeah, that's that, that's kind of what we guess is happening. Um, so while um, in the younger ages, the the neurons are uh, more active, right? They fire more, um, they're more excitable, they have a, a lower or a higher threshold for uh, firing. So action potentials fire when a neuron reaches uh, like negative 40 millivolts. I, I'm not sure if I'm getting too specific here, but um, uh, neurons at resting level, they'll be like negative 70 millivolts. Um, uh, like Would you say like let's say like proxy for millivolts we'll say like an amount of electric electrical um stimulation from a yeah. from yeah. another neuron sure. mm -hmm. so normally you know like at rest they'll be around negative 70 negative 80 depending on the neuron um and then when they reach that negative 40 they fire an action potential which as you know is how neurons kind of uh, talk to each other you know quote unquote um but what we found that is that the threshold, like that negative 40-ish, right? It's higher, so, um, or, or sorry, or lower, right? It's more negative in the, the knockouts. So they need less stimulation or, you know, uh, from like the other neurons to fire an action potential. Just, just indicates that these neurons are more excitable um, compared to the wild types. So these are some differences we found, but it kind of, you know, became like wild type levels by adulthood so it began when their ears hadn't opened up yet basically it mm -hmm. started that you looked in the brain and these neurons they could um they were more likely to mm -hmm. to you know communicate with other neurons um given the same amount of information from uh, from neurons around them but then that that effect uh went away when they were older that... Not entirely, but yeah, a lot oh. of the measures did. Yeah. Was there a distinction between, remember you explained the heterozygous versus homozygous. Mm -hmm. Was there a distinction in this effect between those that have regular uh, uh, half levels of catnap and those that had none? Right. So, you know, what you would expect to see is that, you know, heterozygotes would be somewhere in between the wild types and homozygotes, right? Um, because they kind of have like half the protein or, you know, um, but what we usually find is that they're usually like the same as wild types. And then sometimes like we, like some measures, you know, there, there's so many different measures we do, but in some measures we see that heterozygotes are different from the knockouts and the wild types while the knockouts and wild types aren't different. So um, it's, it's kind of a weird phenomenon that we see that we don't really know how to explain. It's just like, we would have to kind of look more into that, but that's kind of why we included the heterozygotes in the study in the first place is to see, you know, like, do they act more like wild types or knockouts or are they totally different? Um, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting. So it sounds to me like the research you're doing is, is very lab-based and we know that during the pandemic, it's been more difficult to access campus and certainly to access the lab. How has the pandemic impacted or has it impacted um, your research and maybe where you'd hope to be at? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's impacted pretty much everybody, I think, um, at least that I know. Um, I like I am able to go into the lab and do experiments, you know, that I have scheduled. Um, but um, there, you know, there were uh, like projects that I was planning on doing, um, like staining and stuff um, that I just am not able to start at this point, I guess, because it requires a lot of collaboration, um, you know, like microscopes from like different labs um, that would be required. But yeah, so it, it's uh, kind of impeded some of my projects, but uh, thankfully I'm still able to do some of the essential uh, research. It was deemed essential um, uh, because, you know, like the rats that we have, they have to be used by that certain age. Um, like I talked about, like the P70 to 90 or 8 to 12, right? Um, so it's not like we can just like wait for uh, like, you know, the pandemic to be over to do this because it would be wasting a lot of resources. Um, but yeah, it certainly impacted, you know, my work. Um, I'm kind of ready to go back to you know the normal life i would like to you know talk to my colleagues while i'm working and everything and go to grad club after work but uh i'm hanging in there for now so are, are you um so you're are still able to like maintain those rats there's not a worry that you're like going to lose them are you breeding them yeah so um we kind of it's like our lab uh colony um, that we have. So it's something we have to maintain. Um, because I believe at least at one point, um, the rats that we use, the genotype, the catnap to knockouts, they weren't being produced from that company anymore. So we had to like maintain them. Um, but I think I think they are now. Um, but anyways, yeah, we, we get to keep our colony um, and kind of maintain the breeding colony and, uh, you know, do breeding for rats that I need to do experiments on. This is something I never thought about not being in a, a wet lab environment. Where do you, where does one get lab rats? Um, yeah, so there's, uh, there's actually companies, I guess, that uh, kind of provide, you know, that's like their main business that provide these rats. Um, like they ship them over once you put in a order. Um, and then after we do that, I, we kind of breed our own rats. So I will, I breed um, heterozygous rats. So like male heterozygote, right? So they have one catnap to a uh, mutation and then a female heterozygote. And then that results in all three uh, genotypes in the litter. And that's uh, how I get my uh, experimental animals. Cool. So you always have to um, <clears throat> maintain all, all different genotypes so that you, you know, if, when you need to, you can grab from those uh from those litters and uh, get get uh the numbers you need from every genotype the the homozygous heterozygous and so yeah we only do heterozygous bre heterozygous breedings um so like our all our uh, breeder rats are heterozygotes um okay. yeah and then yeah i have to genotype them every now and then and yeah can you just expand on what you mean by genotype them Oh yeah, um, so the process of genotyping is basically taking some tissue, usually from the ear, um, and we basically run that through, um, like do a PCR on that product, right? Like digest that tissue, do PCR. So um, the, the amplicon um, of interest, right? Kind of uh, like 
has the the area of interest. So like the catnap two mutation that we have, it's a five base pair deletion. Um, so like five base pairs are deleted from the catnap two gene in these rats, um, and then we send this PCR uh, off to you know robots where they do the uh, Sangar sequencing, and then they email us the the results, and we kind of read uh, the results from there. That that's cool. You <laughs> so you, you just say, "Hey, I've got this DNA that I that I took from these rats. Uh, tell me what the sequence is, please." And then they like yeah, do yeah, the <laughs> yeah they do the hard part. I think yeah that that's cool. I mean, it's it's nice to have the model in house and to be a hundred percent sure that you're like you know maintaining it appropriately and you've got like kind of good control of what's going on there. Um, uh, I'm wondering now, you know. Uh, I don't know how much time you have left in your or plan to have left in your PhD. Maybe you have, maybe you want to uh, put more time in now that you've been delayed because of COVID. Um, but what's your uh, plans going forward um, after PhD or oh, do that's you have any idea about question. that? <laughs> very good question. I would also like to know. Uh, <laughs> I'm in kind of like the, the middle of my PhD, I guess it's been, like two and a half years and I have two and a half more to go. Um, yeah, I still have to figure out what I want to do after, um, most likely postdoc. I'm not sure if I want to stay in academia, but you know, these are things I kind of worry about. They sometimes keep me up at night, uh -huh. but- Don't you know, think you're alone there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard, it's good to not be alone. Um, but yeah, I am still figuring it out, I think at this point. Do you have any plans to do any virtual conferences and then get some presentation experience? Um, that is not a bad idea, yeah. Um, I haven't signed up for any so far, um, but yeah, I think if I see something interesting, uh, interesting conference, I might have to sign up for it. Well, I, I always like going to uh, Canadian Association for Neuroscience. I feel like I'm, I'm shilling for them, even though I have no really monetary <laughs> investment in them but uh yeah. i know that this year they're holding it in vancouver i don't i think they're intending for it not to be virtual so really i'm pl i'm planning to go uh, but i'm from vancouver so it's like oh. feels like an obvious thing that i'm gonna go uh but you should come <laughs> yeah i'm down i love vancouver i've been there once and it was gorgeous um when when is this conference um it's in the summer it's in august in August, I, I think last year it was supposed to be Montreal, right? Um, yeah, last year it was canceled. Just I mean, yeah, I just outright canceled. I got tickets and I was so excited. Hmm. Um, I had planned to kind of stay a few days after and explore the city. That was very sad. <laughs> I think a lot of a lot of people's plans got kiboshed last year. Yeah. I, I was planning to go to a international conference in Amsterdam um in the summer and that that got canceled i had luckily hadn't bought tickets yet because i'd anticipated that it was going to be canceled but um mm -hmm. that was a very that was quite disappointing <laughs> yeah for sure many conferences i think have have been virtu virtualized if that's even a word we're all going to be experts at recording on zoom and presenting on zoom <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i got in one big conference before this all started so i was able to go to um the sfn chicago um, two years ago now, I guess. Um, but yeah, I'm, uh, society, I'm glad I... so society for neuroscience, the big, mm -hmm. big, big one. 
Yeah, the big one. I got that in. And then after that, uh, no more conferences except for, you know, the online local ones, which, you know, is still great. Have you have you presented? Um, I think you might have presented in the seminar, right? Like um, virtu virtually. I did. How do you how do you like presenting that way? Oh, um, I. I was talking to Chelsea about this too in the beginning, how um, when you're, at least like when you're doing like a virtual uh, like presentation, you can't make any mistakes like when you're talking, right? Like it's like, it, it's, it's just like, you know, it calls so much attention to itself. It's like much better when you're doing it in person, I feel like, um, mm -hmm. like, you know, if you make a mistake, it's, I feel like it's fine, you know? you just keep going um yeah so i i've can't i've kind of had to adopt a different strategy for uh the online presentations where i have to kind of write down my script more and kind of read off it more because it just sounds i don't know a little bit awkward if you try to uh like talk in a conversational way i, I feel like yes a lot of us are getting good at having conversations with ourselves <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's it's interesting. It's different. Um, I am ready to go back to the in-person conferences and presentations if possible. So I, I'd want to ask uh, one more sciencey question, <laughs> if I can, uh, relatively sciencey. Uh, uh, going through this whole um, project, you know, it's many years endeavor, investment of your time in hmm. studying this uh, this topic. Um, uh, how do you feel about the the study of autism? Is this is this something that you came in thinking like I'm passionate about autism in general for X Y and re X Y and Z reason, and therefore I'm passionate about the project? Or mm -hmm. do you find it's been the opposite way where you took on the project and then uh, you know found some interest in the study of autism? That's a really good question. I think it's a been it's been a bit of both. Um, so like during my undergrad, when I took a lot of like science biology uh, classes, I kind of, I, I found uh, it like uh, neurodevelopmental disorders in general, very interesting. You know, I loved studying about them. And um, there was this particular class that was um, kind of looking at the, the evolutionary uh, like reasons that, you know, uh, some like humans develop a lot of like disorders or behaviors, you know, um, although, you know, a lot of the times there are none. Um, but um, I kind of took on this project. Um, well, a project related to the project that I'm doing. Um, it was using the catnap two rats um, in my undergrad as my honors thesis project. Um, and I kind of got interested in autism from there. And then I, I feel like I just, you know, it, it, it was kind of both. I was interested in autism or in, you know, neurodevelopmental disorders in general in studying them. And then I uh, took on this project and I got more interested and, you know, now I'm passionate about my work. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the road that led me here. I know you, I know you don't, you didn't, you're not necessarily sure what you want to do next, but do you have a feeling that it's going to relate to autism research at all or it's or you possible. open doors it might also relate to like auditory uh like processing and stuff because that's kind of what i study as well um it's a large part of it so 
you know, hearing and hearing loss and all that. It's a very big area of research as well. So um, probably something related to what I'm doing in some way, or maybe, you know, an entirely different uh, topic, but, you know, using the skills that I've uh, garnered now, um, because I think having learned electrophysiology, um, I should probably use the skills that I've, you know, so painstakingly learned. Um, but yeah, uh, probably something related to something I'm doing. So do you have any um, social media or website that you might like to share with the listeners in case they'd like to get in contact, maybe learn more information? Yeah, sure. Um, if uh, any listeners want to kind of look into the work that our lab is doing and uh, the different lab members are doing, they can visit uh, the website, uh, the theschmidlab.com. So that's T-H-E-S-C-H-M-I-D-L-A-B.com. Um, and that kind of just has everyone's profiles and, you know, what we're all doing, um, if you're interested. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much, Raj. You have been listening to Gradcast, the podcast and radio show of Western University Society of Graduate Students. If you'd like to listen to more of our episodes, you can check us out on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to get in touch with us, maybe you'd like to be on the show yourself. You can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com or go to gradcast.ca. This episode was produced by our own frame, hosted by me, Elizabeth Muller, and our own frame, and our guest today was Raj Wan. Thanks for listening.